From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The pituitary gland is a hormone-producing gland at the base of the brain. It secretes a variety of hormones that help the body function. Tumors can develop in the pituitary gland, and these tumors can result in too many or too few hormones being produced. On today's program, we'll learn more about pituitary tumors from a Mayo Clinic expert. The average duration of symptoms before someone's diagnosed with a growth hormone-producing tumor is eight and a half years. Also on the program, treatment options for stress urinary incontinence in women. And improving cancer treatment through nanomedicine. That's this week's program. Up next. Tracy, do you know which gland in the body is called the master gland? I do, only because I looked ahead on the notes. You read the script. I did. The pituitary (laughs) gland. Now, it's a tiny organ about the size of a grape located at the base of the brain, but it produces a variety of hormones that are released into the bloodstream, and these hormones influence nearly every part of our body, including stimulating other glands to produce other hormones. There is a reason they call it the master gland. That's a lot to do when you're a grape-sized organ. But things can go wrong. The most frequent type of pituitary disorder is a pituitary gland tumor or abnormal growth. Pituitary tumors are actually fairly common in adults. And joining us in studio is a pituitary expert, Mayo Clinic endocrinologist, Dr. William Young. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Young. Thank you, Tracy. Glad to be here. Dr. Young, so good to have you to talk about uh, the master gland. So it's it's about the size of a, a grape, but... Uh, Summarize for us all of the different things that it does. Right. So in it's, 50 minutes or less. 50 minutes. I can, I can do this. It, it's a small grape. It's about the size of your thumbnail. Sits straight behind the bridge of the nose and just in front of the ears. It's at the base of the brain. And I describe it to patients as if it's a small cherry hanging down from the brain on a little stem. So it's not brain tissue. It's, it's a gland tissue. And it does four big jobs in all adults. It tells our thyroid gland to make thyroid hormone every day. If we don't make thyroid hormone, everything slows down, the heart's slower, no energy, constipation, and eventually you can go into a coma if you don't make any thyroid hormone. Well, really, I thought the thyroid regulated itself, but obviously not. The thyroid is regulated by the pituitary. Right. Without a pituitary gland, uh, the thyroid would not work. That's why the pituitary is the master gland. So we got the thyroid. Yep. And then it tells the adrenal glands. The adrenal glands sit on top of the kidneys, little triangular structures, and they make cortisone. And we all need cortisone to live. Without cortisone, we can't survive. It's important for all the cells in the body. So the pituitary tells the adrenal glands to make cortisone. So that's another very important job. The third job in adults is it tells the gonads, the uh, testicles in men, the ovaries in women, uh, to make their respective sex hormones, testosterone in men, estrogen in women. And not only does it tell them to make those hormones, it tells uh, the gonads how to be reproductive in terms of making sperm and releasing eggs. So it's in- important for, for reproduction. Without a pituitary gland, humans wouldn't be able to reproduce. We wouldn't have a human race. So this is really an important little gland at the base of the brain. And the the fourth job in adults is uh, telling the kidneys how to save water. 
So it's constantly, our, our pituitary and our hypothalamus, which is just above the pituitary, is constantly measuring the concentration of our, uh, of our blood, whether we're dehydrated or overhydrated. So if, you know, you drink that bottle of water real quickly over there, you're going to be overhydrated. The pituitary will sense that and uh, will turn off its hormone called antidiuretic hormone. And without antidiuretic hormone, the kidneys don't concentrate urine at all. So the what's filtered at the kidney just goes out uh, through the ureters to the bladder and the patient urinates. Um, whereas if it's a hot day and you're outside, you don't have access to water and you're sweating, then you're becoming dehydrated. The pituitary senses that, and it makes a lot of antidiuretic hormone. So it tells the kidney, save water, save water, save water, so that you don't become dehydrated. So it's a really important part. That's the back part of the pituitary gland that does that. If that isn't working, a human would have to drink 10 to 12 gallons of water every day just to stay hydrated. You're continuously drinking because the kidneys don't save water. juice goes right out. So if you have thyroid problems or adrenal gland problems or any of the, the four that you just listed, why is it then that people go in and they have their thyroid treated or they have, is it a pituitary problem or how do you know that it's not a thyroid problem? Well, Tracy, that's a great question. That's what endocrinologists do. Okay. They figure out where's the problem. Is the problem at the thyroid where the thyroid itself is decided it's not going to work very well and it's not going to listen to the message from the pituitary or is it a pituitary problem? So we actually measure the pituitary hormone called thyroid stimulating hormone. So that's the hormone the pituitary makes to tell the thyroid to make thyroid hormone. If the problem is something called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, where the thyroid slowly becomes damaged and it can't make thyroid hormone, the pituitary, which is constantly sensing thyroid hormone in the blood, says, hey, thyroid, get going. Come on, get going, get going. So it makes more TSH. So TSH levels in the blood go up. And so we measure TSH. So when someone's hypothyroid, the first thing you do is measure TSH. If TSH is high, that's telling us the thyroid field. Whereas if TSH is low, that's telling us there's a problem with the pituitary. You know, you have done an amazing job of summarizing all that the uh, pituitary gland does. And it it does these by releasing chemicals called hormones to control all of these things? Right. So hormones are small structures, um, typically a series of amino acids. Uh, for small proteins that lock into receptor. So the way to think how hormones work, it um, you know the nervous system is more like an electrical system. So the left side of my brain's telling my finger to go up right now. It's telling it to go down. It's lightning fast. It's instantaneous messaging. With hormones, it's more like a radio broadcast. So the a hormone's released from a cell. It's sent out into the bloodstream uh, like a, this message. And it will not work unless there's a receptor. So you have to be tuned into 106.3 or whatever <laughs> to, to get this message, and that's called a receptor. So the hormones that's circulating locks into that receptor, and that's what causes the action. Uh, pretty amazing. Now, why is it that we don't hear more about the pituitary gland? It's as important as it is. I mean, I'm sure you deal with it every day. People do have problems with their pituitary, but we rarely hear about it. You hear it's all thyroid. Yeah. Thyroid's getting all the press. <laughs> well, well, Tom, if it was up to me, we'd be hearing about the pituitary every day. And I'm glad You're I'm here, here today. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody across the country is going to hear about it now. So things can go wrong. So let's talk about what can go wrong. Right. 
I, I do want to mention two other jobs sure. the pituitary has because this there more this yeah this this uh, impacts what can go wrong. So um, there's another hormone from the pituitary called prolactin, and prolactin has one role in humans, and that's for breastfeeding. So when a woman is pregnant, prolactin levels from the pituitary start rising through pregnancy, getting the breast ready for breastfeeding. So by the time after delivery, the breasts are ready to breastfeed. And then prolactin stays high as long as a woman breastfeeds. So that's an important job uh, in women after pregnancy. Men make prolactin too, but we don't know of any function in men for prolactin. And the last hormone I want to mention, which is really important, that's why we're as, all as tall as we are, is growth hormone. So growth hormone is important in childhood, and it's necessary for growth. And, you know, decades and decades ago, we weren't able to diagnose growth hormone deficiency in children. We didn't have a treatment for growth hormone deficiency. And there would be a lot of people that never grow very tall because their pituitary wasn't making growth hormone. But now we can diagnose it and we can treat it. So children who have whose pituitary isn't working can reach a normal adult height. Pretty rare, though, isn't it? That is that is quite rare. That, that's correct. And what's more common? Well, more common disease of the of the pituitary. So the most common disorder related to the pituitary is a pituitary tumor. And you may be surprised by this, but one out of five adults has a small pituitary tumor. One out of five. Yeah. There's, That's impressive. There's three well, of us here. There's one of five us, of us well, in this room. There's actually five. It's not me. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> now, you could say, well, how do I know that? Well, I know that based on a study done at Mayo Clinic in the 1920s. So this was a pathology resident, somebody training in pathology. In our, at our main hospital in Rochester, Minnesota, St. Mary's Hospital, he did a 1,000 autopsies. These are people who died of non-hormone, non-endocrine disorders. And he sliced up the pituitary very finely. And he found one out of five people had a little pituitary tumor. Now, it didn't cause them any problem during life. So although one out of five of us have a small tumor, it, it usually is not a, a medical issue. Um, and we've replicated that recognition of how common pituitary tumors are with our head MRI scans. As our head MRI scans have gotten better and better, uh, we're finding these small tumors in the pituitary gland. We call them pituitary incidentalomas because usually the head MRI is done for headaches or some other problem. And you stumble over this little uh, pituitary tumor. Then it's up to an endocrinologist to figure out, is this important for this patient? Yes or no. So that suggests that most of the time pituitary gland tumors are, number one, benign, and, and number two, of little significance. That's correct. Don't need, to, don't need to be treated. Right. I'm not here today telling everyone to go out and get a head MRI scan <laughs> to look for a pituitary tumor. That includes us. We are with endocrinologist Dr. William Young. He is also a pituitary gland expert. We've talked about all the important things that the pituitary gland does and why it's referred to as the master gland. We've talked about things that can go wrong, and the most common thing is a benign pituitary tumor. And one of the five, one out of five of us, one out of five, everybody has a pituitary gland tumor that is probably not clinically significant. So let's talk about the ones that are. Uh, what are the symptoms, and how do you make the diagnosis? Right. So we can walk through the different uh, hormones the pituitary makes one by one. Every cell in the pituitary has the potential to turn into a pituitary tumor, and if it does, it'll make its own hormone. And as that hormone rises, it'll typically cause signs and symptoms related to excess of that hormone. 
um, for example, growth hormone. So growth hormones needed for growth. Uh, once the bones fuse, uh, and the epiphyses fuse in the bones, in adults, we can't grow anymore. Those are the growth plates. Those yeah. are the growth plates in mm-hmm. bones. And uh, we can't grow anymore. But if you had a pituitary tumor making growth hormone, it does result in fairly characteristic signs and symptoms. So what happens is um, the shoe size gets wider. The fingers get thicker. So if someone wears a ring, they have to have it cut off. They get it resized. And then a couple of years later, you have to cut off again and get it resized. These people, they're, the pitch of the voice, the voice box gets wider and the pitch of the voice drops. So the woman's voice gets lower, the men's voice gets lower. The frontal bone uh, um, of the forehead tends to, that can grow a little bit and it grows out a little bit. We call that frontal bossing. And the jawbone, the mandible, can actually grow in adults and it'll extend. So what happens, these uh, patients with growth hormone producing tumors, get an underbite. So many times mm-hmm. it's diagnosed at the dental office when the patient's coming in and say, my teeth don't fit. That's because they developed an underbite. Uh, their tongue gets bigger and thicker, so they have more trouble enunciating words. They have excess sweating. Um, they're at increased risk for colon polyps and colon cancer. This first, the list of things that you're saying, though, they sound like that. those are things that happen over time, like your fingers getting bigger and your tongue. That must be very slow growing and... Tracy, you're spot on because the average duration of symptoms before someone's diagnosed with a growth hormone-producing tumor is eight and a half years. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. So that's one of the types of tumors. Do you see multiple different kinds uh, that a- develop? Absolutely. So uh, another type of pituitary tumor is uh, ACTH, producing pituitary tumor. ACTH is the pituitary hormone that tells our adrenals to make cortisone. And if you have a pituitary tumor that's making too much ACTH, it tells the adrenal glands to make too much cortisone. So that also leads to a very characteristic presentation. Too much cortisone is called Cushing syndrome. It was described by Harvey Cushing in the early 1900s. And these patients gain weight. As they gain weight, they redistribute the body weight to the central part of the body, above their clavicles and behind the neck. And Excess cortisol breaks down muscle, so the arms and legs get skinny, actually. So skinny arms and legs, but increased body weight, increased body fat in the central part of the body. The skin gets thinner. So what happens when they gain the central weight, they get these purple-red stretch marks on their abdomen. And because they're losing muscle, it's hard for them to go upstairs. Uh, It's hard for them to do a deep knee bend. Uh, Too much cortisol causes high blood pressure, causes diabetes, uh, so it's uh, face gets kind of round and red. Women will lose hair on the top of their head. So it's a real characteristic presentation. Again, fortunately rare, um, but that's another type of pituitary tumor. And are most of these diagnosable with a blood test? It, it's complicated, like most endocrinology disorders. Um, it, Cushing syndrome, sometimes, so, so people may gain some weight. They may go on the Internet, read about Cushing syndrome, and they come to see us to see if that's the reason they've gained weight. And it's very hard, actually, to distinguish between mild Cushing syndrome and someone gaining weight for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, it, the patient comes in is very characteristic with all those signs and symptoms of Cushing syndrome. So once you have, is the diagnosis also partly based on imaging and MRI scan, so you can actually see the tumor and see the uh, growth inside the pituitary? It is. That's part of it. It's not the first step. The first step 
if you think someone may have Cushing's, is to measure cortisol. We measure cortisol in the blood. We measure cortisol in a 24-hour urine collection, so it's all the cortisol we make in a day. And we measure cortisol at uh, midnight in the saliva. So at a normal person, cortisol levels are highest in the morning. They come down in the afternoon, and they're lowest at night. We don't have a good way of drawing blood at midnight in outpatients, so we actually measure cortisol in the saliva at midnight. It should be low, whereas if it's not low, then that could tell us our patient has Cushing syndrome. And once you've made a, a diagnosis of a particular type of tumor, what are the treatment options? Well, fortunately, there are good treatment options for all patients with pituitary tumors if surgery is indicated, and that's called transphenoidal surgery. Um, it was first developed by Harvey Cushing in the early 1900s. The problem back then, we didn't have antibiotics. So most of the patients uh, developed infections. But with the development of antibiotics, a neurosurgeon in Montreal, uh, Jules Hardy, developed uh, this transferal approach to the pituitary. And by that, I mean... Now, this has got to be a tough spot to get to, transphenoidal. So that means through the nose, through Through, the front of the face? or uh, Well, it used to be through the front of the face. It used to be above the upper teeth and under the lip. But... um, Probably about 18 years ago. It doesn't sound so good, does it, Tracy? <laughs> it was the hair on the back of my neck kind of went, <laughs> But about 18 years ago, um, a scope version of this surgery was developed. So now our neurosurgeons go through the nostril, and they can go through the nostril, tunnel through the back of the nose, and make a little hole in the bone where the pituitary sits. And, and do the surgery, get rid of the, the, the tumor. Right. I'm sure you would like to be asleep for this. I think so. <laughs> I just have to ask, if one out of five people has this, and the master gland controls so many of the different things in the body that can go wrong or be right, why isn't it one of the first things that your doctor checks when you go in? Can you just get a blood blood check on how your pituitary is doing? So that's a good question, Tracy. The, there's not like one pituitary blood test, because um, it does come back to each of those sure, hormones each of those hormones, and each of those glands. <clears throat> so we do it more based on the symptoms the patient may present with, you know, for example, the fingers getting wider or the person's gaining weight and getting those purple-red stretch marks. Does something's not right count as a symptom? <laughs> uh, it can. Um, usually something's not right is not specific enough for the okay. pituitary gland. Mm-hmm. What about other treatment options? Do you ever use radiation or uh, medications to treat tumors of the pituitary? Yeah, right, Tom. So, again, fortunately, we have a good surgical approach, and we there are expert neurosurgeons that specialize in operating the pituitary. But there are patients where the tumor is so big, and it's going to, into an area that the neurosurgeon can't safely get into, and this is around the main blood vessels that supply the brain. So you can do what we call debulk the pituitary tumor, but there's still some left, and that's where radiation comes in. And the most um, the optimal radiation therapy is usually a focused form of radiation therapy. It's called radiosurgery, although there's no knives involved. It's a, it's a big helmet. It's called gamma knife, and this big helmet has 210 holes in it, and each one has a gamma gun. And you focus them all to that same spot from all these different directions. So the idea, it's kind of like a magnifying glass, hot summer day, sidewalk, dry leaf, and you can burn a hole in that leaf. The same idea with gamma knife. And so all those, all those beams are crossing at that little pituitary tumor. 
And who's the one who makes the ultimate decision about how to treat these? Is that you, the endocrinologist, or do you get together? Or? So it's a team approach. Um, so usually the, a pituitary tumor uh, patient will first see an endocrinologist to sort out what type of tumor it is, uh, its you know size, configuration, and then usually a neurosurgeon is, is then asked in consultation to see the patient. So really the best management is determined by the endocrinologist and the neurosurgeon. And then after surgery, if there's a residual tumor, the decision what should happen to that is also the endocrinologist, neurosurgeon, but now a radiation oncologist. I'll tell you, the pituitary, there's a reason it is called the master (laughs) gland. It produces a variety of hormones that control multiple bodily functions. And if one thing is going to go wrong with the pituitary, and one of five of us probably has one of these, (laughs) but at least we hope it's asymptomatic, it's a pituitary gland tumor. Almost all of them are benign. They can be a little bit difficult to diagnose, but fortunately most of them don't require treatment. But when treatment is indicated, you get together with your team. You know, the team approach is a big deal at the Mayo Clinic. Like Lynn Berry always said, you when you go to the Mayo, you don't get a doctor, you don't get a nurse, you get a team. And we often use the team approach, as we've heard from endocrinologist Dr. William Young, to treat these unusual pituitary tumors. Dr. William Young, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate all the great information. Thank you. Glad to be here today. Urinary incontinence, that is, the loss of bladder control, is a very common problem. <laughs> it's inconvenient and often embarrassing and much more common in women. Joining us to talk about the problem is the chair of the Division of Urogynecology at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Emmanuel Trebeco. Dr. Trebeco, welcome to the program. Nice to have you. Thanks for having me. I think most of us know what a gynecologist is, a woman's doctor, but tell us about a urogynecology. Uh, a urogynecologist is a relatively recent subspecialization in uh, obstetrics and gynecology in which we undergo an additional three years of training after obstetrics and gynecology to specialize in pelvic floor disorders, most commonly pelvic organ prolapse or a hernia of the pelvic floor and urinary incontinence. It must be complicated down there if you have to go three more years to learn how to do what you do. That's it. I'm just, I'm just really happy <laughs> that there is now a subspecialty of urogynecology because it is quite common. It, it is indeed, uh, especially with the baby boomers booming. Uh, problems with the pelvic floor and incontinence, unfortunately, is something that is going to continue to grow. While we were setting up today, you said if I had a dime for every time a woman said, first I had a baby and then I can't, and then that's why she's sitting there with you. And it's the, um, and it's the reason why I wanted to do this because I, I, I see that so frequently. A woman that tells me that oh, since the birth of my first baby or the birth of my second baby, I've had issues with urinary incontinence, but that's now 10, 15, 20, 25 years down the road, and that's the first time she's really seeking any kind of treatment for her condition. And I just think about all the things that she missed out by not having this looked at earlier uh, rather than waiting such a long time. Not jumping on the trampoline for one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't it interesting that so having a baby must be uh, a little bit hard on the pelvic floor because uh, women who have had uh, C-sections, had their babies by C-sections, don't have nearly the, as much of a problem, right? That is correct. Uh, in general, women who have had a delivery by C-section and the key is they didn't experience labor before having her C-section. They tend to have lower rates of stress incontinence after delivery. 
Okay, so uh, being a woman, uh, being pregnant and giving birth, what are some other risk factors? Um, age, older women, um, and after going through menopause, smoking history, and weight. Oh. And whether or not they have pelvic organ prolapse, those are some of the most common risk factors for having the condition. Now, you could take the history, and she said, I lose urine when I, what, cough, sneeze, laugh, so exercise? Tip- so typically that you leak with coughing, laughing, sneezing, bending, lifting, exercise, and sometimes even with intimacy. Is that, is that enough for you to know what the problem is and proceed with treatment, or the other diagnostic tests that you do? So usually it's pretty straightforward from the history. Um, the other really useful tool we use is something quite simple as avoiding diary. The patient writes down how much she drinks, um, how often she goes to the restroom, and whether or not she has an accident before she gets there. And it's important to really sort out the different types of incontinence. What we're talking about now is stress incontinence or leakage related to physical activities. But it's quite common that women have more than one reasons for her leakage. Sometimes they can have urgency incontinence or overactive bladder. And that's when they have that sudden desire or sudden urge to urinate that tends to be uncomfortable. And before they can quite make it to the bathroom, they have an accident. And it's quite important to distinguish in the different types because how we treat them is really quite different. Okay, there's multiple kinds of treatment, including one I'm really excited to learn about, a surgical option. But before you get to surgery, what are some other options? So uh, assuming that the patient primarily has stress predominant or stress pure incontinence, there is a number of treatment options, including um, physical therapy, um, weight loss if the woman is overweight or obese, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. Physical therapy, you mean like Kegel exercises or, or what? I'm, I'm oh. so glad you asked about that. Uh, <laughs> another um, thing that I wish I got a couple bucks for every time I heard that is a woman who tells me, I've been doing Kegel exercises since I did my birthing class. And then you do a pelvic exam and you find that she's squeezing every single muscle in her lower body, but not the pelvic floor. So to think you're doing Kegel exercises and to (laughs) actually be doing uh, Kegel exercises sometimes can be distinct things. So that's one thing a therapist can help you with. Exactly. So our physical therapist colleagues are, are super important in helping the woman find the right muscles and really engage that appropriately so she can have the maximum benefit from the intervention. And what is bladder training? So bladder training is more of a treatment we do for urgency incontinence. That can be um, a a retraining of the bladder so you can better deal with those sudden urgency sensations because the, I I, I call it the penguin dance to the bathroom. It's (laughs) actually the wrong thing that the patient can do. And again, if she has good pelvic floor strength, she can learn how to do urge suppression, which is squeeze and relax, squeeze and relax and calm the urgency and make it to the restroom. But again, that involves physical therapy and education so she can do the engagement of the pelvic floor at the right time. All right, let's talk about surgical options because I didn't even know there was such a thing. So so let me back up a little bit before talking about surgical options because I think stress incontinence has a huge um, gamut of symptoms and bother. So when we do survey studies, it's quite common that adult women have some amount of leakage, but that happens commonly sporadic. I would say for most of those patients who have such rare episodes, we probably don't need to do anything. 
Now, fast forward to women who now have it frequently or bothersome, so it's precluding them from doing their normal physical activity. So clearly now it's bothersome. They've come and met with a provider. We tried a non-surgical option, uh, and they're still having bothersome symptoms. Now I think it's really time to talk about how to proceed. And in terms of, of surgery, there are both non-mesh and mesh type of procedures. The thing to understand is that the mesh-based procedures are the most minimally invasive. If that's the only problem, it's an outpatient procedure with fairly high success rates. 80 to 85% of the women are either completely dry or significantly improved. Um, and overall is fairly safe and effective with less than 5% of the women incurring um, complication from surgery that requires another intervention. And, and what do you do with this mesh? How, how does this work? Essentially, we make a small incision underneath the urethra tube through the vagina, two small incisions in the pubic hair area, and we use a trocar, looks like a crochet needle, that we pass uh, from the vaginal side to the abdominal side, and we put this mesh material underneath the urethra. And what that does is it provides a support, so when there's periods of increased abdominal pressure, the pelvic floor muscles can work in conjunction with that stabilized floor, the urethra, to coapt it shut, so then intraurethra pressures is high and she doesn't leak. I thought there were a lot of problems with mesh. I'm glad you asked about that. There's been significant amount of confusion, I think, with all that's going on with both the Food and Drug Administration's warning regarding transvaginal mesh for prolapse. And that's the key factor. That's just transvaginal mesh for prolapse reconstruction. Prolapse of the? Of the vaginal walls. Okay. Okay. Because something completely different. It's a much larger piece of mesh, okay, that's used for a completely different indication that's meant to correct prolapse. The FDA was very explicit that this did not apply um, for sling procedures for stress incontinence or an abdominal procedure called a sacrocopopexy to, again, treat pelvic organ prolapse. Is that because it's a smaller piece of mesh? How to best answer this? Mm -hmm. There's many different variables. So, A, the size of the mesh who implanted the mesh, and what was she or his surgical experience. And the type of material you used during that original implantation are big, significant variables that can explain the differences in outcomes with those vaginal mesh procedures for prolapse versus stress incontinence. Actually, the treatment of stress incontinence with those polypropylene macroporous mesh has actually been one of the most studied procedures in gynecology, and like I mentioned, overall it's safe and effective. But even in that realm is confusing because there's actually three different types of slings. So I don't know how confusing or in-depth you want me to go, but there's certain nuances even about those procedures. So there's mesh and non-mesh. So you can actually do this procedure without using mesh, and why don't you do that? So we used to do that up to the 2000s, and those most common procedures are called a birch, or a fascial sling, but both of those procedures require an abdominal incision or a laparotomy. It's much more invasive. Laparotomy means opening the abdomen to to get this done. But you can do the same thing with the mesh without opening the abdomen. Yes. We can treat the stress incontinence with a procedure that doesn't involve making an abdominal incision or opening the abdomen. And the results are good. Those The results with the sling are very good, mm-hmm. and compared with both of those procedures, they tend to have women who have the procedures treated with the sling have higher satisfaction. Mm-hmm. 
and overall lower complications. Because if we back up, what are the two main issues with any incontinent surgery? The biggest one is we do things a little too tight, and now she's continent, but she can't empty, mm-hmm. okay? And if you do that autologous sling, that open procedure, okay, you don't have the, the non-mesh. The yeah. non-mesh, you don't have the mesh-related complications, but your risk of requiring another surgery because it's too tight is much higher. So my point is, if you're going to have surgery for stress incontinence, it's really important to speak with the provider about the risks and benefits of each approach and come up with the risk-benefit scenario that best suits your needs. And that that really requires a more in-depth conversation. And picking an experienced surgeon, also very important. How many of these have you done? Uh, I think our group has has done hundreds of these procedures. All right. We've Perfect. been doing those procedures here since 2002. That's what I like to hear. That's the guy <laughs> I want doing mine, or yours. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Stress urinary incontinence, a common problem, particularly among women, and it's especially common in women who have delivered their babies vaginally, having had not by C-section. Several options available to treat them. Dr. Drebeko has outlined those for us. In severe cases, surgery may be the answer. And the sling procedure with mesh is not only highly successful, but has relatively few complications. That is correct. Dr. Emmanuel Trebeco, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure being with you guys. Dr. Joy Wolfram is a researcher at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science in Jacksonville, Florida. She was recently named to the Forbes magazine annual list of 30 under 30. Big deal. It's impressive. The magazine describes those on that list as the brashest entrepreneurs across the United States and Canada who are putting a new twist on the old tools of the trade and shaking up some of the world's stodgiest (laughs) industries. So what is it that she's doing that's so innovative and exciting? Let's find out. Joining us on the phone from Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, is Dr. Joy Wolfram. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Dr. Wolfram, congratulations. That's a, It's a wonderful honor. So I want to go back to your childhood because apparently you were always a curious kid. Exactly. I was always very curious about everything around me. <laughs> when I was 11 years old and my dog had a skin infection, uh, so we rushed her to the vet. And there I saw them doing some Petri dishes test. So they took some swabs from her skin and put it into these bacterial culture plates. I thought that was fascinating. I asked the vet, can I take some of these supplies home to do my own experiments? And she looked at me sort of <laughs> like I'm crazy. But in the end, she did uh, hand me a bag full of these supplies and sort of whispered, don't tell anyone. <laughs> and that night I went home and started my own uh, miniature microbiology lab in my room and one of the first experiments I did was to swab um, refrigerator shelves <laughs> and it was amazing results. In a few days you had all these colors and shape form and of course all I was these bacteria growing exactly. on the petri dish. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Out of your refrigerator. And I called my family into my room and said, you know, <laughs> look at this all these bacteria and they were horrified but Actually, our fridge wasn't unusually dirty. It's just that science is unusually cool, and there's all these worlds out there that we can't really experience unless we use these scientific tools. So that sort of drove me to later pursue a bachelor, master's, and a Ph.D. in, in biomedical sciences. So you put a new twist on the old tools of the trade. How do most scientific breakthroughs happen, and what did you do that was so different? Exactly. So... Um, What's surprising is that 99% of what we do in science actually fails. So it's a lot about resiliency 
and uh, to keep trying, even if we're not getting the results we're expecting. But sort of the thing uh, that my team has done and that my colleagues have done is thinking about cancer in a different way. So we spent $100 billion or more just in the U.S. on cancer research in the last 70 years. Um, and still we have certain types of cancer where the survival rates haven't really changed. Mm-hmm. So how can we approach this from a different perspective and how can we use nanotechnology and, for instance, physics um, to study cancer and develop new tools? And when you say nanotechnology, tell us what you mean by that. To me, it means small. <laughs> exactly. So it's like tiny little cars that we can inject into the blood and we can uh, load these cars with passengers and the passengers are the cancer drugs. And this will help the cancer drugs get to the tumor instead of going everywhere in the body. And so we have higher uh, therapeutic efficacy and also reduced side effects usually when we're using these tiny nanoparticles. So you load the, the nanoparticles with something that will, will kill the, the cancer. Exactly. So usually we can use standard chemotherapeutic agents, so cancer drugs that are already used in the clinic, but this way we're able to improve their transport within the body. I've heard about this with viruses, like using viruses to fight cancer. Is that what you're doing? Are you attaching these nano, nanoparticles to viruses? It's similar because viruses are actually the same size as the nanoparticles we use. But instead of using viruses, we're making them up from uh, other types of materials. Some are synthetic and others are actually from our own bodies. Have you used this in the in the clinical setting yet? So we haven't uh, because usually it takes 12 years to get something from the bench to the medicine cabinet, but others have. So there's uh, more than 10 clinically approved nanoparticles for cancer uh, in the U.S., Um, Those are pretty simple nanoparticles, and so my team and others around the world are working to get more innovative nanoparticles into the clinic, but they're already there. From your standpoint, what what are your value? What's your most important value as a researcher? It's a great question. I think it's service. So I think as leaders, uh, we are servers. So I ask myself, how can I serve my team members? How can I serve patients, community members, and colleagues? So that's really, really what we do. You have a, a bit of an accent. Uh, yes. You came from where? Uh, I was born in Finland, um, but I also spent some of my childhood in the UK. And then how did you get to the US? So um, I was studying biology, and I thought about, you know, thinking, as I mentioned earlier, thinking about cancer in a different way. So I got some funding from my home country in Finland and looked at where are the best places in the world um, to do nanotechnology from a translational uh, patient-focused perspective. And um, where I initially went was the Texas Medical Center, which is the largest medical center in the world. And there they had this uh, new nano department inside a hospital, so similar to the great uh, resources we have at Mayo Clinic. Then after I uh, graduated with my PhD, which was in collaboration with the Texas Medical Center in China, I started my own lab at at Mayo Clinic in Florida. Wow. So are you going to continue pursuing the cancer avenue with nanomedicine, or what else are you you looking at? Exactly. So we have two main directions in the lab, and one is cancer, and the second is regenerative medicine. So how can we develop new nanoparticles that can help organs that are damaged? 
So uh, you obviously have have had some success in the field of research, and uh, Forbes magazine recognized that fact. Do you, for the young people out there, uh, and in particular young women, do you have a, a recipe for success? Well, I think it's definitely resilience. As minorities in science, it's rarely neutral. It's either a disadvantage or an advantage, and usually it's a disadvantage, so we really have to be resilient, uh, resilient and keep supporting each other. And we also need support from the majority. So never give up. And, uh, you know, we need more minority leaders in science. So we need you. Dr. Wolfram, I was just going to ask, I've got teenagers. And so often what I hear is the jobs that they will have when they're done with college don't even really exist yet. Is it going that quickly? Is it that fast from your perspective? I, I think it is. There's a lot of new fields emerging like artificial intelligence and so on that will play a role in biomedical therapies. But one thing that I'm very excited regarding the future of nanomedicine are these biological nanoparticles. So all of us actually have a lot of nanoparticles in our bodies and a new area to explore is how can we exploit these biological nanoparticles for therapeutic purposes. And I think one of the areas is regenerative medicine. So I think a lot of the teenagers today will be probably involved in those types of applications in the future that are not really clear to us yet how that will look like. And how do we do that? Do you know, do you have a theory on how that, how to do that? Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, outreach, us getting into schools, getting kids excited about science and so that they're ready to take on those new challenges uh, as technology evolves. When you daydream, what do you think about? Do you think, do you ultimately hope that nanotechnology will prove to be a cure for cancer? Well, absolutely, of course, everything we do is to, to benefit patients. Um, but I had three main goals, and and the first is that I dream about um, making a difference for patients, getting some of our therapies actually into clinical use. And the second is developing future leaders. So if I can help develop, for instance, minority leaders that then go on to inspire others, then that's having a really big impact that goes beyond just myself. And then, of course, thirdly, is removing bias against minorities in science. Impressive. Yeah. Well, she's recently been named to the Forbes magazine annual list of 30 under 30 for her work in nanomedicine. Truly an emerging researcher to watch, revolutionizing targeted cancer treatments to potentially help millions of people who die of the disease every year. Dr. Wolfram, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.